0: Good morning and invite you to open your Bibles with me as we turn to the Scriptures in preparation for Jonathan to bring us the message this morning. Our reading this morning is from Romans chapter 8 and from Ephesians chapter 4. So Romans chapter 8 beginning at verse 18 to verse 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. In Ephesians 4, verse 29 to 32. God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Warren. Well, good morning again. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Romans chapter 8. We are in a series, uh, coming to the end of the series, actually, entitled, What is the Church? We've been seeking to understand our purpose to refocus our attention on God, to renew our love, and to reflect God's glory. Uh, This morning we come to uh, the last sort of in a subsection here on what it means for the church to be related to God through the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see this morning that we are preserved uh, for God. Here's a little bit of where we've been Uh, we've looked at the church in relation to the Father to see that we're the assembly of God's people. With respect to the Son, we see that we are His redeemed, the redeemed of the Lord. And as we've been considering the last few weeks, we are those who have been born of the Spirit. We were born to testify to God. We were born to be witnesses. We are born of the Spirit to be possessed by God. And here finally we see... This morning, we are born of the Spirit in order to be preserved or kept for God. Romans chapter 8 is a wonderful, uh, magnificent chapter, one of the most encouraging in all the Bible, and there's so much that could be said about it, but this morning we're going to be focusing in verses 18 to 30 on the role of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's operation in the life of the believer. And Paul has made a statement in verse 17. He says, Now if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I don't know if you caught the inherent tension in that statement. (laughs) We are heirs, co-heirs. Indeed, if we share in his sufferings. (laughs) Why are heirs suffering? Why are those who are inheriting the glory in the kingdom of God under tension right now? Paul picks up on this tension, and so in verse 18, he says, for I consider that our present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. There's a tension at work right now. We could look at a number of different things to point to our tension, but I thought, Let's go to the fridge. <laughs> if you open the fridge, maybe uh, you'll do that later today. Maybe you did that this morning. Maybe you were pour, pouring yourself a bowl of wheat bix. How many in here wheat bix is your every single morning? A few. Some people. We got a few. There we go. Only two. Wow. I thought it'd be higher. Uh, and 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 you go. You, you get your wheat bix right. You you put it in the bowl and you go. You reach for the milk. And I don't know about you, but I of all the many details I keep running in my mind, one small detail I always keep in my mind is, how far out of date is the milk, right? Everything has a use by date or a best before date, doesn't it, right? It's kind of an amusing thing, but it tells us of the tension that we live in. Things seem to expire, things perish, they, they, they lose their value. My son, I'm not gonna say which one, uh, but I was at the school this week and we were doing the Father's Day thing and we're going around and, and, and we're, we're visiting the classrooms and one of my sons pulls out. He says, oh, Dad, I keep forgetting to take this thing home. And he holds up a container that used to have some sort of smoothie in it. I can't recall when we last made a smoothie. (laughs) Right? And you're just watching things growing in there. Now, I know that amuses some of us, Um, but but you look at it, you're like, oh, it's just not appealing, right? The longer you leave it, the worse it gets. And sometimes we feel that way, that we have A best before date. Well, the best is behind me. The best is in the past. Or maybe you feel like you've hit your use by. Last week we saw that we are sealed with the Spirit, so I want to welcome you this morning. Welcome to those of you in Christ. Welcome to you who have been sealed with the Spirit of God. What a great privilege that is, isn't it? Last week we saw that we're sealed with the Spirit, that God impresses upon us. The image of Christ, he marks us as his own, he authenticates us, we belong to him, and he will inherit us in the day of redemption. But the big question we're going to consider this morning is, how will we last until the end? How are we going to make it? Have you ever caught yourself wondering that? How am I, as a Christian, going to make it? Maybe you've been trying to live off the feelings of the past. You've been trying to live off of that, that moment when you came to faith and you had, that, you had that rush of peace, that that immediate sort of alleviating of your guilt and your shame, and you remember that joy like it was yesterday, but that's what you're living off of. And you're wondering how long is this gonna last? Maybe you've realized that being a follower of Jesus is a lot more complicated than the person who first shared the gospel with you had really explained. Maybe you, you, you're coming to realize that along with the offer of forgiveness is a surrender of obedience, and you're finding that difficult. And you're wondering, how am I going to make it to the end? It's a good question. It's a question that the Scriptures are not afraid to answer. In fact, the church in Galatia, the churches in Galatia, faced a very pointed rephrasing of this question from the Apostle Paul. You see, they were trying to seize that, that, that sense of certainty. And so when people came along and they said, well, look, if you really want to be a Christian, if you really want to follow Jesus, what you need to do is you need to go through the ritual of circumcision. And there was many of them who latched on to that, and it was to that group that Paul posed this question. He says, having begun in the Spirit, will you now finish in the flesh? I wonder how many of us this morning are trying to finish in the flesh what God has begun by the Spirit. So the big idea this morning is that the Spirit who marks us will keep us. The same Spirit who marks us is the Spirit who will keep us. That's what we're going to look at this morning. I really uh, appreciated this quote, which is not in here. (laughs) So I'm just going to read it. I'll come back to that. I want to read this quote to you from Michael Bird, talking about the hope that Christians have. He says, hope is not optimism. Rather, hope is the audacity of faith under adversity. I like that. Hope's not optimism. Christian hope is not this, oh, well, it's all going to work out. I'm not really sure how. It's just going to all come together. Rather, hope is the audacity of faith, he says. It's the cheering and triumph for what others deem a lost cause. Hope expiates the misery of life. Hope is currency in the land of melancholy. Hope is the dancing when the music has long ceased. Hope is bread for the soul that is starved. Hope is the voice that whispers to us that all things are possible. He goes on, he goes on. Hope is the grace to face our fears, knowing that there is someone greater than the sum of all fears. Hope holds out a light rather than curses the dark. Hope is the physician of a terrified soul. Hope is the hero of the weak. Hope is defiance in the face of the tyrant. Christian hope Christian hope is powerful. And so I encourage you this morning as we look at what the Spirit's gonna do to help us to recognize that one of the Spirit's chief manifestations in our life is to point us again to the hope of Christ. Do you need that this morning? Do you need some currency in the land of melancholy? Do you need bread for your starved soul? Do you need that audacity that audacity to stand with Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is only by your grace that we can come to you. And Lord, um, as someone who's just been reminded this week of his own inadequacies, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm just marveling at your goodness to me and to us. Father, would you help us today? Would you encourage us through your Holy Spirit? Father, would you point us again to Jesus in whose name we pray, amen. In terms of our outline this morning, to understand the Spirit's role in preserving us for redemption, we must answer three questions. First of all, why does the church of God need keeping? Why does the church need keeping? Secondly, how does the Spirit keep us for God? What's the Spirit's role in that? And thirdly, how do we keep in step with the Spirit? So why does the church need keeping? How does the Spirit keep us for God? And how do we keep in step with the Spirit? And if, just in terms of uh, of of a good kind of summary today, I I I was struck by this statement by one of our elders, Warren Johnson, in sermon and scripture this week, and he pointed this out. He said, "The Spirit's preservation demonstrates our present value and our future purpose. We have a present value and a future purpose." So, first question. slide. Oh, there's my quote. There we go. <laughs> Why does the church need keeping? The church needs keeping, number one, uh, because redemption day awaits. In the New Testament, we can speak of Christians as having been redeemed and Christians who will be redeemed. Have you noticed that? Maybe you've got a little bit confused when you read your Bible sometimes. You're like, why does Paul seem to talk sometimes like it's a past event and sometimes like it's a future event? The reality is because it's already started. But why does the church need keeping? Romans chapter 8 points us to this truth that what is now is not yet what will be. There is this great anticipation in all of creation of what's going to happen when God reveals us and the full glory of our redemption. The fate of humanity and the fate of creation tied together so that when the sons of God are revealed in Christ, there's this restoring of heaven and earth. This new heaven and new earth comes along with it. But why do we need keeping? Listen to just some of the things that the Bible says. The Bible says that the days are evil. These days you and I live in are evil. Jesus would tell his disciples that the love of many people will grow cold. He was fond of asking his disciples, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Peter would tell us that the devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. John would write that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are commonplace to our experience in this world. He would then go on a couple verses later to say that many antichrists have come. There are people who come in the exact antithesis of the spirit of Jesus. And in this passage, we see that the creation, like us, is groaning. And so the sufferings of Christ are shared with us. We share in those sufferings. It's really important to keep these things in balance, to wait eagerly, but also to wait for the day of redemption. See, some people want to rush forward. They say, oh, everything's already happened. People in Paul's day were saying Christ had already come. Everyone was already risen, Uh, uh, that that redemption was fully and finally here. There's other people who say, oh, it's never going to happen. We don't have any sort of spiritual uh, power right now. But the truth is, Redemption Day is coming. And so we need to be kept. We need to be kept for that day. Sorry, Michael, we'll skip that again. (laughs) So how does the Spirit of God keep us, keep us? How does the Spirit preserve us? We see that the Spirit is someone that Jesus provided to us as an advocate. John chapter 14. In John 14, Jesus Told his disciples, he said, I'm going, but I'm going to send an advocate who will be with you, the promised Holy Spirit. Isn't that a comfort to know that the Spirit lives in us? Jesus said, He's never going to leave. He's going to be with you forever, and He's going to be your advocate. Who's felt like they needed an advocate this week? We often think of an advocate in terms of with the world, but we also need an advocate with God. We need someone who is continuing to tie us and relate us to the Lord. I'm just going to warn you, I may need to get a stool. I, I, I went walking a lot earlier this week, and my feet are very much in pain. So if I grab for a stool, that's what's, that's what's happening. Oh, thanks. Yeah, sure, if you don't mind, thanks. Um, I'm not trying to dance up here for you. I'm just in, my feet are in a lot of pain. Um, Jesus said that the promise, that the Spirit that he promised would dwell with us and would be our advocate. And this was supposed to be, this was a good thing for the disciples. They had experienced the Spirit of God just by ministering and living with Jesus. But now, when Jesus goes away, he said that He and the Father would send the Spirit and that He wouldn't leave them as orphans. Isn't that a good thing to know? That you're not alone, that you're not abandoned, that you haven't been made an orphan. In Romans chapter 8, earlier before verse 18, there's a whole lot of information about what the Spirit of God does for us. The Spirit of God enabling us to fulfill the law so that there's no condemnation. The spirit of God is also the spirit of adoption. The spirit of God empowers us to live righteously. The spirit of God helps us cry out, Abba, Father. Oh, wow, look at this. (laughs) Gee whiz, thank you. It's great. We'll see how I go. Watch, I probably won't need her now, but... Thank you. Uh, can I just say, it is such a privilege to, to, serve, to serve alongside so many lovely people in this church. It's an absolute, absolute delight. Absolute delight. Thank you to everyone who, who participates in fellowship and in worship here. So the Spirit has already been doing many things, but as we come to the, to the latter portion in this chapter... The latter portion in Romans chapter 8, I want you to focus on what the Spirit is doing. In verse 20, uh, excuse me, let's jump ahead if you have Romans 8 open in front of you. Paul talks about how the creation is groaning, eagerly waiting for the sons of God to be revealed, verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to Sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Christian, it's okay to groan. All right? It's okay to groan. There is a difference between groaning and grumbling. Grumbling is that murmur. That murmur of a, of a whiny child who can only have a vision for what they want. Groaning is different because groaning is a reckoning with the weight, the heaviness, the misalignment of this world, a longing and a yearning for God himself. You know, there's a difference between groaning and grumbling. It's okay to groan. Absolutely. It's okay to lament. Did you know lament is a form of worship? We don't often like to come to lament services, do we? <laughs> hey, we're going to have a lament service. This Friday, come. Come. Some of you need to lament. Some of you need to know it's okay to lament. Lament is saying, God, I see this the way you see it, and I grieve as you grieve, even while I hope in you. And so Paul says that the creation is groaning, and and we are groaning. Now, Paul's not saying all of humanity here, he's saying we who have the spirit, Which is again why if you only associate the experience of the Holy Spirit with some sort of out of body jubilation, if that's all you associate with being indwelt by the Spirit, you're going to miss it. Because here Paul says we have this, these people have the Spirit and yet they groan. Yet they're eager for their adoption to sonship. Christ has redeemed us. The claim has been made. We have been sealed as belonging to God, but yet we wait. We wait for the redemption of our bodies. And Paul says, in this hope, you were saved. Again, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. As many of you uh, know, my family and I are going to get to go to back to the US in a couple, uh, less than two weeks now. We're very excited. Tickets have been paid. The trip is coming. Rental cars have been rented. (laughs) Lots of money has (laughs) has been given. And in some ways, we can sit down at the dinner table and say, hey kids, we're going to America. But if I came down and said, we've gone to America, they'd say, no, we haven't. But I could say, well, but I've, I, I, we've paid for the tickets. We've, we've already paid for the tickets. You've already have your reservation. You got your, you got your passport. You got everything's, everything's in order. You're completely qualified to go. But if I sat down at the table and said, Isn't it great? We've just been to America. They look at me and say, "Uh uh-uh, no, no. (laughs) And yet some of us, trying to imagine this is heaven. Can we have an experience of it? Can we have a joy of it? Do we actually have a first installment? Absolutely we do. And that's where my analogy breaks down. But hope that we have, the hope is an indication that we haven't actually received it yet. So how does the Spirit keep us? First, in verse 16, we're told the Spirit helps us. Have you ever thought to yourself, will somebody just just help me out here? Somebody just, you know, lend a hand. You know, just can somebody just, 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 just jump in and, and, and lend a hand for me? Guess what, Christian? The Spirit of God is helping you. Is there a better helper? You know, we can say... If only, if only this person could just see things from my perspective, if only they could just get their head around what I'm going through right now, then surely they would help me. And we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait. And we're sitting there saying, wow, they must be a terrible person (laughs) because here I am in all my need and they're not helping me. when God has promised us his spirit and the spirit will help you. The spirit helps us in our weakness. Well, but I thought, I, I, I thought as a Christian, I don't have weakness. No. We still groan, right? There's a weakness. There's an incapacity. And the spirit comes to our aid. Look, look what's next. The Spirit doesn't just simply attend to us or help us. The Spirit intercedes for us. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Now some have taken this to mean this is a kind of a, a tongue talking or a speaking in tongues, but it's not actually that's not what it's saying. Because the point is, the utterance that the Spirit makes is wordless. Yes, I believe there's a gift of tongues, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about when you and I have no words. When you cannot utter a prayer. When you go to meet with God and you try to incline yourself in some sort of posture of faith to verbalize to God your need and nothing comes out. In the nothingness, in the wordlessness, the Spirit still prays. The Spirit still intercedes. And what a good intercessor he is. Verse 27, he who searches our hearts, that's God the Father, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Aha, and now things are starting to make sense. You know, we might think if God's, God is living in me and God, God's Spirit is petitioning for me, then, then surely life would go smoother, wouldn't it? But we're in this place of wrestling out the will of God in our lives. And like the children of Israel going through the wilderness, there's parts of our flesh that are resistant, that, that, that don't want to go, that resist the manna on offer, that resist the drink from Christ, that resist walking according to his ways. But the Spirit continues to petition us, I mean, to petition God that his will be done for us. That's a great comfort, isn't it? This week, Arden and I got to sit down with a friend of mine named Eddie Bang. You're going to hear this conversation uh, in the podcast that we, that we release when it comes out. And Eddie told this story. Oh, it was just, just fascinating. Eddie is a, he's a friend of mine. He's, he's a pastor here in Sydney. He's got a lot of experience. And at one point earlier in his ministry he was so disappointed he was so devastated he said i didn't pick up my bible for a month this is a guy who left his home country moved over to australia put everything all his financial resources all his relational resources everything into a church plant only to have only to have a partner turn on him and cause the whole thing to founder He said, Jonathan, I couldn't pick up my Bible. He said, I went 28 days, 28 days ignoring God. 28 days later, he said, I went to my bed and I saw my Bible there. I decided to pick it up. He said, eight hours later. Eight hours later, I got up. He said, I was drenched in tears, overcome. I ask you, what was going on for those 28 days? The Spirit of God was interceding for his child. The Spirit of God petitioning. Brothers and sisters, when we come to the end, we need not give up. Rest assured that those born of God belong to him and they will return to him and his saints will persevere. I'm not encouraging you to test the Lord in this way. But I'm encouraging you to be comforted and to realize that it's not all on you. Finally, How do we keep in step with the Spirit? In John 14, Jesus talks about the importance of obeying his commands. If the Spirit is interceding and petitioning God that his will be done in your life, then you can trust that that's going to look like you receiving the words of Jesus and being called to walk in them. In 1 Thessalonians chapter five, verse 19, Paul gives the command to this church, a young church. He says, do not quench the spirit of God. The spirit of God is likened to a flame. We see this both through the promise of John the Baptist through the outpouring in Acts chapter two, the spirit of God likened to a flame. And so the command not to quench the spirit is to not throw cold water. Don't throw the cold water of the world on the Spirit of God and what he's doing. Don't say, I just got to settle down. this This is just too intense. No, there will be an intensity in the Spirit's work. There will be a burning up. There will be a consuming that comes along with the Spirit's activity in our life. And God is saying to us through the Apostle Paul, don't pour cold water on that. He would tell the church in Ephesus, do not grieve the Spirit. This is in a context of which Paul is telling them to be truthful and honest with each other, not to lash out in anger, not to lash out in bitterness. And and there's so many words and instructions, excuse me, that deal with words and how they treat each other. It's in the middle of that context that Paul says, don't grieve the Spirit. Isn't that interesting? If God is dwelling with you and I, not just me, but you, and He's doing something in me and He's doing something in you, you can imagine the grief when with our words we tear one another down, when in bitterness or anger we destroy what God's doing. You can grieve the Spirit of God by working at cross-purposes with Him. We walk by the Spirit by keeping ourselves from idols. I was reading even this morning in Ezekiel chapter 14 when God says to the prophet that they're not to. He's talking about the wickedness and the waywardness of his people, and he says, These people have set up idols in their hearts, and yet they come to me and they're asking for revelation. He says, Son of man, should I answer them? And so, brothers and sisters, walking in the spirit is not it's not having a crystal ball. It's not having a genie in a lamp where you and I go about our merry way, go, go doing our things and running our agendas and climbing social ladders and accumulating possessions and, and working relationships, and then when we get stuck, we pull out the spirit, we rub it a certain way, and then shazam. That's not what it means to walk in the spirit. The spirit of God is gonna lead us in worship to Christ. He's gonna point us to Christ so that we lay down before him. And so for us to try to walk and rely on the Spirit when the Spirit's trying to lead us to Christ but our heart's trying to go to idols, you see, we're not going to keep in step with the Spirit. We keep in step by receiving the provision of Christ. We keep in step with the Spirit by reflecting the glory of God. John Stott says this, prayer is in itself an essentially Trinitarian exercise. It is access to the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. The inspiration of the Spirit is just as necessary for our prayers as the mediation of the Son. We can approach the Father only through the Son and only by the Spirit. The Spirit will teach us how to pray and how to walk So, Christian, be encouraged because the same Spirit who has sealed you, who has set you apart as God's possession, is the same Spirit who will keep you. May we walk in step with Him. May we yield to Him. May we not grieve Him. May we not put up stumbling blocks. May we not try to throw cold water onto the things that He's trying to consume. And may we yield to his prompting as the band comes up i'm going to remind you of those words that we were praying earlier in this service about the spirit's role in the wilderness in isaiah chapter 63 we see a cluster of occurrences of god's presence being referred to as the spirit we don't have as much about the spirit of God in the Old Testament as we, as we do in the New Testament. But there's a cluster in Isaiah chapter 63. And in Isaiah 63 we see the same command, not to rebel and to grieve the spirit as the wilderness generation did. And if you think about what happened, they were redeemed by the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, they were liberated from slavery and they were led into the wilderness just like Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. And in the wilderness, God dwelt with his people. His presence in Isaiah 63 is called the Holy Spirit. Christians, we are in a process of journeying into the full inheritance, the full redemption. Not only will we stop groaning, but we will experience full freedom and glory in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can know you. We thank you that we can pray to you through the Holy Spirit on the basis of Christ's intercession. Thank you that we can cry out, Abba, Father. So Lord, would you hear the cry of our hearts today? And may we look to Christ. Amen.